That's Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve, because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and clothed clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Evening, folks. Uh, my name is Mark. I'm one of the pastors here. If I haven't met you, 
Uh, I'd really like to, if it's your first time here especially. Uh, I'll be trying to catch up with any of your faces that I don't recognise in the foyer afterwards. I hope you'll stick around and join us for dinner. I uh, just want to let you know before I start that we're going to be doing a Q&A uh, after the sermon. It's part of what we've been doing as we've been working through this series in the book of Genesis. And so there's going to be an opportunity if there are things that I say that you think, oh, I'd like to know a bit more about that, or if you disagree with something that I say, you are entitled and we'd love for you to ask some questions. Uh, throughout the sermon, there's going to be a phone number that's going to be up on the screens. You can text your questions into that phone number. There'll be a bit of a buffer as well once we finish. So if there's stuff you want to think about afterwards, uh, you can text it in there, but just as a heads up for where we're going. All right, let me pray for us, and then we're going to have a think about Genesis 3. Let's pray. Almighty God, we are conscious that as we gather here together tonight, And we hear from you that we are hearing from the creator of the universe. You are the all-powerful, all-wise, holy God. And so, God, we don't presume anything as we come before you. We don't presume that we are somehow worthy to be in your presence, to relate to you, to call you our father even. God, we know that we are only here because you have called us and you have gathered us. And so, Father, we know that we are speaking with you on your terms here tonight. So, Father, whatever it is that you have to say to each one of us through your word, I ask, Father, please speak and give us ears to hear what you are saying. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Well, uh, if you came in a little bit late into the the, uh, service this evening, you might have missed Pete telling you that this evening we're going to be thinking about the topic of sin Now, here's a disclaimer. I know that there is not a single person in this room who came to church tonight, and people don't come to church in general eager to hear sermons on the topic of sin. It's just, it's not why people gather. It's not a fun topic to think about. And so before any of you get too excited and jump out of your seats here because we're about to spend the next half an hour or so thinking about sin, I want to try and convince you about why you should want to think about Genesis chapter 3 and about the topic of sin in general. I think this is one of the most important things that we can spend the next 30 or so minutes thinking about. And so here are some questions for you. And as, as I ask these questions, I want you to be thinking, do I know the answer to these questions? How would I answer these questions? Have a think. What is it that is so bad about committing a sin that makes it deserving of being sent to hell? How can one sin make you deserving of being sent to hell? How about this? How is it that a Buddhist monk who is genuinely and sincerely searching for God and doing everything that he can to keep himself pure, how is it that that person is a sinner? How does that work exactly? How about this? When a Christian brother or sister confesses to you and shares with you that they have a major area of sin in their lives, how should you react to that? How are you supposed to think about things like that? Or more to the point, what do you think God thinks when you commit a sin over and over and over again? What is God thinking at that point? How about this? If, if we're born with a sinful nature, which is what the Bible claims, how can we be held accountable for sins that we commit? How can God judge us for those things? 
Now, I could go on and on and on because sin is one of the most complicated and most influential topics in the Bible. And I hope that what those list of questions do for you, apart from giving you ammunition that you could then throw back at me during Q&A after the sermon, is I, I hope they whet your appetite and they make you think, yeah, I, I do need to think about sin a little bit more. I need to delve into Genesis chapter 3 because I tell you, Genesis chapter 3 is one of the most important chapters in the Bible. You cannot understand the rest of the Bible until you understand Genesis chapter 3 properly. And it's more than that. You cannot understand this world unless you understand Genesis 3. You cannot understand your life unless you understand Genesis chapter 3. You cannot understand God. You cannot understand your salvation unless you understand Genesis chapter 3. It will not make sense at all. And so this really is one of those topics, one of those chapters that is at the roots of our redemption. Now, here's the deal. There has been so much said and written about Genesis chapter 3 uh, and its implications over the centuries that I cannot possibly hope to cover it all. It's just not possible in 30 minutes. And so here's the plan for you. On your bulletin, you will see on the back page there, there's an outline of where we're going. There's four simple points that we're going to be looking at tonight. As we look through Genesis chapter 3, we're going to be thinking, first of all, about the essence of sin, and then we're going to think about the consequences of sin. And then from there, we're going to move forward through the rest of the Bible, and we're going to be thinking about God's solution to sin, and then what it means for us to live in a world where we have to battle with sin. It's a big picture of where we're going. Now, if you haven't been here for the last couple of weeks, we've spent several weeks going through those first two chapters of the Bible, Genesis 1 and 2. And as we've worked through them, what we've seen so far is a a world that is in perfect harmony. Uh, We've seen a world of beauty that God spoke into creation. And we've seen how in this world that God created, everything is at peace. There is perfect relationship between men and women. They are ruling over creation and they are relating intimately to their God, relating to him face to face. And as these first people, the first man and the first woman lived in God's world, they could do whatever they want. They had ultimate freedom with the exception of one command, one prohibition, one thing that God told them they were not to do. You read it back in chapter 2, verse 16. God says to them, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will certainly die. And so we're going to pick up the story in Genesis 3, and we're going to be shown how this perfect world that God created is shattered and turned upside down. So let's walk through the beginning of this story and let's have a think about our first point, the essence of sin. What we're really looking for here is what is it that is at the heart of sin? What is it kind of at the core of sin, at that kind of fundamental base level that makes something sinful, sinful? What is that thing? Now, perhaps as you think about that question already, there's an answer springing to your mind. Perhaps you already are thinking sin is pretty easy. Sin is just when we disobey God's commands. It's when we break God's commands, just like Adam and Eve did. That's what sin is. And in one sense, that is perfectly right. That is absolutely true. Sin is disobeying God's commands. But I want us to kind of dig a little bit deeper than that tonight. I want us to try and look below the surface and to find the root cause of sin. And this is really important that we get this right, because 
The Bible tells us later in Romans chapter 5 that through Adam's sin back in the Garden of Eden, sin kind of entered into the world, kind of like a virus, like an infection, a disease. And now we are all infected with this thing called sin. So there's a very real sense in which when we read Genesis chapter 3, we're not just reading about Adam and Eve's sin, we're reading about our sin too. So let's work through the beginning of this story here. Genesis 3 verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. Now, just right off the bat here, we're introduced to this character for the first time, the serpent, not giving any more details about it. The Bible's not interested in where this character came from. He's just there. Later in the Bible, we'll discover that this serpent is Satan. He is the devil. And rather than explaining his backstory, we jump straight into the first recorded question in all of human history. He says to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now, that's a really interesting question because there's something very subtle going on there. Did you notice how the serpent has changed the word that he uses to speak about God? Before, it was the Lord God. You know when you see that in the Bible, capital letters, L-O-R-D? That's God's personal name. That is the name Yahweh. But that's not how the serpent refers to God. Now it's just God You know, that creator God, that distant God, that God who's out there and who's not really in intimate relationship with you. Did did that God really say this? You see, the serpent, he's kind of sowing seeds of doubt in the woman here. And instead of kind of just shutting the serpent down, she kind of engages with him in this debate. And so verse 2, the woman says to the serpent, no, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but look, look what she adds to God's command there in verse 3. But God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. Well, she's wrong, isn't she? Because God never said that they must not touch it. That wasn't part of God's instruction back in chapter 2. She's kind of making God out to be a little bit more harsh here than he really is, making out God to be a little bit too restrictive. In her mind, she's starting to think about God like that no-fun headmaster who doesn't want her to experience the good things in the world, right? And so the serpent kind of grabs hold of this doubt in verse 4, and he says, you will not certainly die. It's the first time in the Bible that God's word is, is blatantly contradicted. And have a look what the serpent promises there in verse 5. He says, For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. You may know the movie The Truman Show. Uh, It's a movie starring Jim Carrey. He plays a character called Truman Burbank who lives, he's unaware that he's living in a reality TV show in this fictional town called Sea Haven, this 1950s style kind of middle America idyllic village, which is really nothing more than kind of a movie set that's populated by actors inside of this giant bubble. And his every move is being broadcast around the world 24-7 for billions of people to watch. Now, as the movie progresses, Truman kind of becomes aware slowly that this reality that he's been living in is fictional. And so he begins to to plan his escape from this beautiful place he spent his whole life in order to bust out into the real world and to attain freedom. Now, as viewers of that movie, we're kind of led to believe that the director of the reality TV show, the guy who's in charge, we're led to believe that he's kind of this megalomaniac. 
and that he doesn't have Truman's best interests at heart. It's an interesting movie because it's making a statement that to be truly free, it means having no restrictions, no boundaries put in place whatsoever. And so when Truman does eventually liberate himself, spoilers, sorry, from Sea Haven, it's portrayed as a triumph. He's free. And that's kind of what the serpent is tempting the woman with here. It's that, that promise of self-determination, that promise of kind of real freedom, uh, where you rule your own life and there's no one to tell you what to do. That's, that's what sin does. Sin promises you freedom. It promises you that you ruling your own life is going to be better than God ruling your life. That there's going to be more satisfaction to be had, more joy, more excitement. If you're in charge, you will be free. That's what sin promises. Did you catch what else the serpent promises there in verse 5 as well? He says that when she decides to rule her own life, that she will be like God. There's a terrible irony to that, isn't there? Because we know that men and women have been created in the image of God. They cannot be any more like God than they already are. You can't get any more like God than being a man or a woman. But this is the temptation that she's faced with here. Listen to God, trust God, obey God, or ignore him and rule her own life. And so the story reaches its climax in verse 6. Will she, won't she, verse 6, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. Now that should be ringing some bells for us here because that, that's echoing Genesis chapter 1. You know, the story where God creates every single thing and he looks at it and he sees that it is good. But here, this is now the woman who is deciding what is good. She's looking at this fruit and saying, yeah, I think that's good. I'll have some of that. And she gives some to her husband who's there with her and he eats it too. Adam is right there. He's culpable for this sin too. So here is their sin. They have disobeyed God's command to them. But can you see that the essence of their sin, what's actually going on beneath the surface for Adam and Eve and for us when we commit acts of sin, that it's actually a failure to trust God. That's what sin is. God says to us, live under my rule. I know what's best for you. I will take care of you. And sin is saying to God, actually, no, God, I don't want any of that. Actually, God, I think I'd be happier if I ruled my own life. So you get lost, God. Why is it that we sin? It's because we fail to believe that God has given us these boundaries for our own good. We we sin because we question whether obedience to God is actually going to lead to the most joy in our lives. See, sin is a heart problem, isn't it? It's a failure to believe God at his word. And so we get sucked into that exact same question that hooked Eve and that proved so deadly for her. Did God really say? Isn't that the question that we wrestle with every single day? 
did God really say to, to love your enemies and to forgive those who hate you? Because that doesn't seem very practical, and so I don't think I'm going to do that. Did God really say that you're not to show favoritism to anybody and that if someone walks into church that we're to treat them the same, whether they're rich or poor, no matter what? Did God really say that? Because, man, that sounds really uncomfortable to me, so I'm not going to do that. Did God really say that I'm to be sexually pure outside of marriage? Because to me, that sounds like I would be missing out on a whole lot of fun. So, no, I don't think I'll abide by that one, thanks. Did God really say that it is more blessed to give than to receive? Because I tell you, in my assessment, I think I would have a lot more fun if I kept all my money and my time for myself. Did God really say blank? You fill in the blank for your life. What is it for you? What is the sin that you are struggling with that you are doubting to believe that God actually said? Friends, please understand that your sins, my sins, all of our sins, they're not just innocent mistakes. They are failures to trust God to rule our lives. That is the essence of sin. Now, the second thing that Genesis chapter 3 shows us is that our sin has consequences. Now, of course, there are the immediate consequences that you read about in in chapter 3 with the curses that are put on Adam and Eve, but there is a much bigger picture that Genesis 3 actually wants us to see. Uh, This chapter wants us to grasp that the biggest consequence of our sin is that it separates us from God. That's what sin does. It separates us from God. And so look down in verse 7. What happens when they commit this kind of decisive act of disobedience? Well, it's a total anticlimax, isn't it? Instead of some kind of great enlightenment where their eyes are opened and they have freedom and they're liberated, well, what happens when their eyes are open? They realize that they're naked. Their innocence is gone. They're now embarrassed. They're ashamed. And so verse 8, they hide from God among the trees of the garden, these these trees that God had given them as a, a gift to provide food for them. Well, now they're using these trees to put a barrier between themselves and God. They don't want to walk intimately with God anymore. They want to hide from him. And so God calls out to them in verse 9. He calls out to the man, where are you? That's a funny question coming from God, isn't it? God is all-knowing. God is omniscient. God knows exactly where they are. Why does he ask this question? Well, have you ever played hide-and-seek with a, a young child? where the child will go and hide in a place that they think they can't be seen, behind a curtain or something, but their foot is sticking out from behind it. And so you walk around pretending not to know where they are. Where are you? I can't see you. Come on out. And you want them to to freely come forward and to laugh and to revel in being found by you who is seeking them. That's kind of what's going on with God here. God is kind of saying to Adam, I know where you are, Adam. Come out. Come before me in the light of day and tell me what you've done. Admit that you have done wrong. But Adam won't. Instead, we kind of get this really sheepish answer in verse 10. I heard you in the garden, Adam says, but I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. God says to them, who told you that you were naked? He's like a parent kind of prodding his child. Come on, tell me. Tell me, who told you that you were naked? And then we get the blame game there in verse 12 and 13. The man blames the woman. The woman blames the snake. The snake doesn't have a leg to stand on. 
dad joke. All right. <laughs> Joking aside, though, just, just grasp how far their intimate relationship has broken apart by this point. There is this relational distance between them now because of their sin. That is just how sin operates. For all of the freedom that sin promises you, for all of the satisfaction that it promises you, it always leaves you feeling empty and guilty and ashamed. And so just as Adam and Eve did, we distance ourselves from God. We hide from God because we don't want to come before him when we feel so guilty. And friends, please realize that that is just such a stupid thing to do, to hide from God. When I was young, I grew up in England, and one winter I caught pneumonia when I was reasonably young. And it was pretty serious. I had to be hospitalized. I don't think my life was ever in danger, but I had to be given a course of antibiotics to try and kill the infection. Uh, But the problem was that I just flat out refused these antibiotics. The, the nurses and the doctors and my parents, they tried and they tried for days and days and days to convince me to either take these tablets or to let the doctors hook me up to a, grip, to a drip because that would make me well. I needed these drugs, but I just refused. It was idiotic because the one thing that I needed more than anything else in that moment was the one thing that I was refusing to do. It's kind of like that with us when we sin because when we sin we know that the first thing that we should do is we should run to god we should go to god and fall down before him and repent and say i'm sorry god but that's that's not what we do is it it's our shame and our guilt makes us run the opposite way we get as far away from god as we possibly can and it is just so stupid I think the truth is that probably for many of us here tonight, many of us Christians here tonight, we are actually missing out on a depth of intimacy with God because we're choosing to harbor sin in our lives. We don't feel as close to God as we would like to. We're not excited about worshiping God. We have no desire to speak to God in prayer. We're not hungry to hear him speak to us in his word. And so often when that's the case, it's because we are just nursing some kind of hidden sin. A little bit of greed, a little bit of bitterness, a little bit of lust. And we wonder why God feels distant to us. It's because that's what sin does. Sin separates us from God. And in kind of a big picture, in an ultimate sense, That's how we're supposed to understand Adam and Eve being kicked out and banished from the garden as the rest of the chapter goes on to record. It's because of their sin that they no longer have access to God in the garden. That intimacy, that fellowship that they had with God in chapter 2, well, it's just gone now. And so you read at the end of the chapter in verse 24 that God placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden a cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Uh, Just this last week, maybe you would have heard on the news that a man was arrested for breaking into Buckingham Palace in England, the home of Queen Elizabeth. A man had climbed up a tree near the fence and he jumped over the barbed wire uh, to wander around the grounds in order to try and go and see Queen Elizabeth with his own eyes. Now, as it turns out, they didn't know at the time, but since it's been revealed that this man was actually a convicted murderer who had 
very recently been released from prison. And so needless to say, he was not on the guest list at Buckingham Palace. He had no business being in the presence of royalty. And it's the same with Adam and Eve being banished from the garden. They are not fit to see the king. They are unholy, unclean, sinful people. And so they cannot stand in the presence of a holy God. They are separated from him. And now there's this impenetrable barrier that's stopping them from having access. And and friends, that's not just a consequence for Adam and Eve not being allowed to go back into the garden. That is true for every single person who has ever lived since. You know, when you read through the rest of the Old Testament, you read about the tabernacle and you read about the temple that's eventually built in Jerusalem. And both of these places are supposed to be places where God's presence comes down to earth and dwells. And the Israelites were supposed to go to these buildings to do business with God. But as you read through, you see that people aren't allowed to get to the presence of God, into that most holy place in the center of these buildings. They're blocked from entering by these these giant thick curtains that are embroidered with this image of a cherubim on it to block the way. What's the lesson from all of that? It's that God is holy and we are not. That our our wickedness, our rebellion, our ungodliness, our selfishness, our pride, our arrogance, our envy, it, it stops us from seeing God face to face. We cannot enter into his presence. From the moment that we take our first breath on this earth, we are prevented from doing the very thing that we were created to do. That intimacy with God that we were meant to experience, that's beyond our reach because of our sin. That is the consequence of our sin. And that's where the story of Genesis chapter 3 ends. But thankfully, that's not where the story of the Bible ends, is it? If you think about it, it is really remarkable (laughs) that our Bibles have this many pages and not just the first two. It is remarkable that God continues to have dealings with humanity after this point. God could have quite rightly chosen to just kind of wipe them, wipe them out, start again. He could have said, right, you're on your own. Enjoy that mess that you've made for yourself. He could have done that, but he didn't do that. He chose not to. Instead, God chose to mend the separation that we had created. God chose to provide a solution to our sin and to make a way for people, people like us, to be in his presence again. You know, just as God was calling out to Adam back in the garden in verse 9, where are you, where are you? That is exactly what God continues to do for the entire rest of the story of salvation. That, that, if you like, is a summary of the rest of the Bible. God would not let humanity hide from him forever. And so page after page after page after page, God pursues people. He is determined to gather a people to live in his holy presence again. And so for thousands of years, he keeps calling people calling people to come to him, to seek forgiveness, to repent for their sins, to find cleansing. And for thousands of years, people keep turning away. They keep rejecting God's word. They keep choosing to rule their own lives. That great enemy of sin that is now in the world, it seems to just keep on winning. It seems like there's no hope that people will ever be truly free from their sin, free to enter the presence of God again. 
Until, of course, we reach the New Testament and Jesus arrives. He arrives to provide a solution to our sin. Jesus, you see, he steps into the story of the Bible as that great descendant that is spoken of back in Genesis 3, verse 15, that descendant of the woman who will crush the serpent's head and who the serpent will strike his heel. Jesus is that one. And so you read in in Hebrews chapter 10, for instance, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place. Do you spot that? We have confidence to enter into God's presence. Confidence, if you like, to walk back into Eden. Confidence to meet God face to face. To have that intimacy with him that we were created to have. How? How does our sin get done away with? By the blood of Jesus. By a new and living way that is open for us through the curtain that is his body. You see, the death of Jesus is the solution to our sin. Jesus' death opens up the way for us to enter back into God. That's why when Jesus died, the curtain of the temple is torn in two. It's, it's showing us that a way has been opened up again for people like us. We can approach the holy God, and not just fearfully, confidently. Confidently, thanks to the blood of Jesus, which covers over our sins. You have to grasp this, friends, that when you trust in Jesus, God no longer sees your sin. He no longer sees your wickedness. He no longer sees all of the times that you have failed to trust him, that you've rejected his rule over you. When he looks at you, what he sees is you clothed in the blood of his son. He sees you spotless. He sees you unblemished. He sees you holy. And so you can stand in God's presence again. Forgiven, redeemed, confident. You can relate to him as your father again. Just as you were created to experience. The death of God's own son. That's what it took. The righteous for the unrighteous. That is how serious our sin is. Now, of course, as much as we experience that intimacy with God as our Heavenly Father here and now in this life through faith, we know that a day is coming when all the remaining traces of sin in this world and in our lives are going to be removed and we're actually going to see God face to face in the new heavens and the new earth. The Bible closes in Revelation chapters 21 and 22 with a picture of a completely sin-free world. And that's really important to remember, that that day is coming and it is not here yet. As we think about our last point for tonight, and that is our battle with sin, because we live in a time between the forgiveness of our sin on the cross and its total eradication in heaven. We're living in a time between those two things. And because of that, our sin is forgiven, but we are still sinful. Now, if you don't know this, I'm going to break the news to you. It is no secret that Christians continue to sin. Now, hopefully that comes somewhat as a relief to you because, thank God, I'm not the only one who still struggles with sin. But there's a flip side to that as well. Hopefully there is a sense of heartbreak as we come to grips with that fact. 
because we still commit the very thing that separates us from God. We are still sinful this side of heaven. And so what should we do about that? Well, the consistent teaching of the Bible is that for those of us who have put our trust in Jesus, this side of heaven, we have an obligation. And it's an obligation to battle against all of the remaining sin in our lives. We are to be people who wage war with our sin. The Apostle Peter, he puts it like this, 1 Peter 2, he says, He himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. Uh, The Apostle Paul will say in Colossians that we are to put to death whatever is earthly within us. In Ephesians, he will say that we are to put off our old self and to put on our new self. You see, what he's describing is that you have to put in effort to resist sin. You have to break a sweat to resist sin. It's not going to happen automatically. Now, yes, it's true that God is the one who works within us by his spirit. And yet, God calls every single one of his children to labor and to strive and to exert themselves in the battle to resist the sin which his son died for. This is a serious, serious matter. This battle against sin, it is so fundamental to the Christian faith that we're warned in Romans chapter 8, verse 13, that if, if you persist in living according to your old sinful nature, that you will die. But that if by the Spirit's power you put to death the misdeeds of the body, those things that kind of belong to your old self, if you get rid of them, and instead you put on your new self, then you will live. This is serious. Here is the cold, hard truth. Yes, we are forgiven, but now we must be killing sin or sin will be killing us. Do you get that? We must be killing sin or sin will be killing us. If we're Christians, we don't have the option of kind of conscientiously objecting to being a part of this war. We've been conscripted into this war, whether we want to be or not. Either sin dies or we die. That's the choice we all have. Now, friends, please don't mishear me on this. I'm not saying that we'll ever be perfect this side of heaven. But we are called by God himself to keep killing sin day by day as it attacks us. We do not settle in with sin. We fight it and we kill it. So very quickly as I finish here, what does that battle actually look like? How do, we, how do you and I kill our sin on a day-by-day basis? Well, that is such a big topic that um, and so much that Scripture would teach us on this that we... We cannot possibly uh, look at all of it. So maybe you want to ask me about this uh, in the Q&A instead. Uh, in fact, what we are going to do this week in our home groups is we're going to think about this principle in a lot more detail, what it is to kill sin. But before we actually go and have our home groups, I want to give you the one principle, the one big kind of overarching principle that guides us in our fight against sin. Do you remember how we saw that sin is kind of it's most fundamentally, in its essence, It is a failure to trust God, right? Remember that? We sin when we don't trust God to rule our lives, and instead what happens is we believe the lies of sin. Uh, And so 
we believe the lies of sin that we're going to be more free and more happy and more satisfied if we live and rule our own lives. If that's what sin is, well, then fighting against sin is a fight to believe. Fighting against sin is a fight to trust God. The battle with sin, I'll tell you, it's, it's not primarily about setting kind of wise boundaries in your life, not walking down certain streets or hanging out with boyfriends or girlfriends at certain times of the night. The battle with sin is not primarily about you having a good accountability partner that you share your life with. The battle with sin is not primarily about you just mustering more willpower to say no to temptation. Uh, all those things are good and wise and please go ahead and do them. But the battle against sin is something that takes place in your heart. It is a fight for faith, a fight to trust God at his word, to trust his promises rather than the promises of sin. So, for instance, if if you are battling against the sin of greed, then you need to have faith that God is more valuable and more precious than all earthly treasures. If you are battling against the sin of bitterness, well, then you need to believe that God is working in all of your circumstances for your good. If we are battling the sin of pride, then we need to trust that greatness is found through serving rather than being served. You see, whatever the sin that you are struggling with in your own life, there is a superior and a more satisfying promise that God has made to you. And please understand this, friends. You need to work. You need to labor and strive to put your faith in that superior promise and not in the lies of sin. That's how we fight against sin. And so let me ask you, friends, are you actively fighting sin in your life? Are you making war with sin? Or have you maybe made peace with it? Uh, The stakes are incredibly high. Jesus' blood has already been shed. Our sin has been cancelled at the cross. And now God is calling us to play our role, to work in the power that his spirit supplies, to resist the lies of sin, and instead to live under the truth that God's rule over us is actually the very best thing for us. We've seen that the sin, the way that sin shattered the peace and the perfection of the garden. I know that you will have already seen the effects of sin in your life and the lives of people around you. So friends, please, let's remind each other to live under the truth, to live together in our sure hope that Jesus has has wrenched open the grip that sin had on us. He has restored our intimacy with God and that he is bringing all things back together under his rule, not in a garden, but in a city, the city of heaven, the new Jerusalem that is to come. Let me pray. Almighty God, we confess that we have rejected your rule. We have chosen to rule our own lives and to ignore or to not believe what you have said. God, our guilt makes us distance ourselves from you. If we were left to our own devices, we would run and hide. But God, we praise you and we thank you so much that you are a God who seeks. You are a God who calls out and pursues people. That you have been determined to gather people back into your holy presence. 
to experience intimate relationship with you as we were designed to. God, we were hopeless in our sin. We were lost. We were dead. And so we thank you so much that through your son, Jesus, you have opened up the way. That through Jesus, our sin is dealt with. It is cancelled and forgotten and erased and that we can and we do stand before you completely forgiven. That you look at us and you see the perfect holiness, the perfect righteousness, the perfect blamelessness of your son. God, this is nothing short of a miracle. And so, Father, help us, please, to be people who don't take sin lightly. Help us to be people who resist sin, who make war with sin, who hate our sin and who are determined to put our faith in your promises and not in the lies of sin. God, we need your help to do this. We are so weak, so easily tempted. So please supply us with strength by your spirit as we labor and strive and exert ourselves to pursue holiness. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.